HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Learn more about PASA's 2021 virtual conference at pasafarming.org slash conference. This week on Meet and 3, it's our 100th episode. We're breaking the mold to kick off our mini-series on global trade. Vegetable, fruits, grains, and cooking technique pass from one region to another. And that's interesting that that region transformed that ingredient into their own specialties. There was a time where black pepper was a luxury. And we know that because people were willing to invest huge amounts of money to go to the Spice Islands in order to get uh, pepper. <laughs> you know, stuff we take for granted now. You know, you go into a restaurant and it's free. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. This is the first episode of 2021. So 2020 was a unique year, to say the least, and 2021 is already shaping up to be a little crazy, but... You know, there's nothing to do really but forge ahead with talking about food and agriculture and all of the important related issues. So that's what we're going to do. And honestly, we're still in a place where the big talk topics that we talk about are more important than ever. Food security, since so many people are out of work due to COVID. Health, as it relates to the kinds of food we produce, since COVID outcomes are often worse for individuals with diet-related diseases. Climate change, of course, and so on. And it's January, so no matter what we're in the middle of, it's a good time to talk about the future. And today's guest is perfect for that. Dan Miller is the founder and CEO of Steward, a unique online platform for investing in sustainable farms. We're going to be talking about investment in agriculture and how he's trying to change the status quo in order to transform the food system far beyond this year. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lisa. So January 2021, how are you feeling about the future of the food system? 
there's certainly more conversation than ever. And I think people's awareness has changed over the past year. And now the work begins of what does it really look like to build an alternative food system? And I think we're just in the early days of that conversation. Mm, I love that. Well, we're going to have the conversation now to, to get that started, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about um, the origins of Steward and, and, and what you do. Um, you have a past in, in crowdfunding, I know, before Steward. What made you turn your attention to farms specifically? So, yeah, before I founded Steward, I was the co-founder of Fundrise, which was the first real estate crowdfunding platform. That originally came out of me doing real estate projects in Washington, D.C., kind of smaller scale, unique real estate developments and wanted to let individuals support those types of projects. So during that time, I was also working with chefs and learning more about you know, leasing properties to, to chefs and, and their business. And so through those chefs, I started to meet the next generation, I would say, of regenerative farmers. And as I met these farmers, just kind of informally, I kept hearing their stories and their stories always ended up with, I can't access capital and without funding, I can't grow my business. And so as I was working on Fundrise and, and learning real estate crowdfunding and building that business, the whole time in the back of my head, the idea of applying the, the individual's lending to and supporting and providing capital to regenerative farms was sitting with me. And so at one point I just was, was felt that it was now the time to, to start working on that concept. That was in 2016. There was a lot of work for me to do to understand that. But I think if we're going to build a food system that is more equitable, that does support a broader range of individuals who are farming and, and, and provide better sustenance to people, we need all the individuals that want to support that system to use their capital to fund the people producing that that food. And I think that's been the disconnect that I've seen, that there's a lot of interest on the consumer side. There's a lot of interest on the climate side. But at the end of the day, the resources available to farmers, particularly the small to mid-sized kind of non-commodity farmers, there's very little available. And the goal with Stewart is really to bridge that gap, to take the step beyond just purchasing from these farms or kind of supporting the movement uh, indirectly and actually taking their funds to, to provide the resources needed for those farmers to make a living. Right. Why, why are there so few resources available to smaller farms? Can you talk a little bit about what traditional investment in agriculture looks like? Sure. And that was a learning experience for me, too. So, you know, as I start understanding better where funding comes from agriculture, you quickly realize that almost all funding is provided either directly by the government through the USDA or by banks that are lending through government programs. And all those programs are designed to incentivize large commodity production, generally export-driven, the kind of post-World War II agricultural model. So if, you, if you're not in that framework, if you're not a large-scale, you know, multi-thousand-acre, top-ten commodity farmer, there's not a private market of funding. There are not really alternative options because that primary market has been dominated by huge amounts of, of low-cost government capital. So it's, the idea is called crowding out. It, it kind of has pushed away all other types of capital over the past hundred years. So you're in a landscape where there's really one primary option, which is this kind of low-cost but uh, commodity-driven finance, or you're stuck on your own. So most of the farms that we support, you know, they've used credit cards, they've used whatever savings they have, they've maybe got a neighbor or a friend to give them a bit of money, but they just get stuck then of like, how can they grow? How can they buy land? How can they buy equipment and take that next step and become a, a business of, of reasonable size? And so that's where we tend to step in. 
And, and the challenge is that even though these farms have great stories and they have customers who love them, that today is not translated into more availability of funds. They're still dealing with the funding market of decades past when no one was really aware of these challenges. And so that that's the problem, kind of making the, the connection of, of providing more access to funding, different types of funding, not just that one flavor of kind of large scale commodity finance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how does Steward step into that gap? How does the the process actually work for farms that want to um, apply for investment? So the beginning of the process starts like they would with any normal lender. They apply through our website, through referrals, through digital ads. They come to us. Um, they submit an application. We review it internally. We have a team member who's a farmer himself. He founded and ran a farm incubator for a decade in North Carolina. He then sets up a phone call with candidates he thinks are of high quality. Um, our first parameter is their farming practices. We only support sustainable regenerative agriculture. There's a lot of kind of definitions of that, but um, you know we have our own assessment of how we how we judge that, and that's the first assessment. And then with Aaron and, and our team vetting the project, we get an understanding of their experience, background, products, markets. We're not looking for farms that need to have a ton of revenue or need to have tons of experience. We're just looking for farms that are already active. They've put in the few years to establish their business. They've really developed their markets. They've developed their products, and now they need a burst of funding to grow. And we're generally funding the purchase of land, equipment, um, operating capital, whatever they need for that next step. And that funding's raised through our platform. So we approve their loan. We prepare an offering page telling their story, helping them with marketing materials. And then that loan is distributed through our platform to for people to participate who are connected to that farm, so customers, friends, family, and also uh, lenders on the steward network. And so it's kind of a combination of each loan is funded in portion by their existing relationships and then other people that they didn't know before that, that are interested in supporting them. And we find through a lot of these programs, a lot of these offerings, there is a pretty strong network around these farms of people who would like to lend capital and help them grow their business but they haven't had a way to ask for it in a formal in a formal manner. And so I think a lot of what happens is these kind of first and second trick relationships can find out about it and are excited to support. And then what we're building is a network of more and more individuals. So many of them might have started with a single project, but then they see another farm that has a similar story and is doing similar work and they're inclined to do it. So for us, it's about building that audience of lenders who support this type of regenerative farmer and then each farmer gets the benefit of that network being grown. Right, absolutely. You mentioned, you know, this criteria that you use to evaluate the farms. Um, I'm really curious about that because, you know, like you said, there are lots of ways to define sustainable. Um, now, a lot of different uh, conceptions of what regenerative means. C- can you talk a little bit more about the criteria you use um, to determine if a farm is a fit for steward? Certainly. And, that, and that's always one of the first questions we get. I think many people are skeptical of the concepts of sustainable regenerative agriculture as either being, you know, preachy or not in line with what most farmers are doing. I mean, we're focused on small to mid-sized farms um, for livestock, you know, at the biggest one, 1,700 acres. For fruit and vegetable, they're generally, you know, a few hundred acres or even less, as small as a single acre urban farm. So these are, you know, run by the the people that own the farm, you know, it's them doing the day-to-day work. 
maybe some other people supporting it. They're very focused on soil health. They're focused on the quality of the product they're growing. They're focused on nutrient-dense food that they're selling directly to people within the local region. They're focused on resource efficiency. So, you know, it's not just about climate. It's not just about fair wages. It's about a farm that leads first with what they're growing and how they're growing it, and that has positive impacts broadly. And then the economics come come second. I think that the challenges of, of the kind of regenerative labeling happens when you get to larger farms, you know, a 20,000 acre commodity farm. A lot of those are now becoming organic. And there's, you know, in reality is large scale monoculture, you know, ever organic really in, in, in the practices and principles of it. And so I think a lot of the challenges around, you know, mislabeling and co-opting of these terms happen when you step outside of, of the kind of normal size of a farm that's run by someone who's incredibly passionate and motivated by that purpose. Um, and that's, we've looked at kind of studied the history before 1920, the average U.S. farm size was was 140 acres, and then it's ballooned to almost 500 acres now. So that consolidation of agriculture has led to larger and larger farms, which means they're, they're more distant from the land that, that they're taking care of, which has led to a lot of, I would say, practices that um, are not in everyone's benefit. But we do adopt to each farm in each conversation. We don't require certifications. I think often the certifications don't mean as much as people think they do. And um, it's really about understanding that farm or their motivations, their practices, and also how to help them do better. You know, what, what are different ways they can do better? And most of them want to learn. I think um, it's just a misnomer that farmers most of them are farming a certain way just because that's what they've been taught. That's what the system teaches them. That's really the only opportunity. A lot of the farmers we're working with, they've struggled outside the system for years. I mean, they, they've they've persevered in a really challenging climate by not being traditional. And so they're happy to find an organization that, that supports that type of farm, you know, that values what they're doing, not just by the economics, but by the fact that they're having a greater impact. Right. Well, and one thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, it's it's difficult to make it as as a small sustainable farm, right? They're up against this bigger um, commodity system that you're you've been describing, um, and it's it's hard to kind of compete in in the marketplace um, it, when they take on um, a loan from Steward. What are you know, I'm just curious, like if, if it can be difficult for the farms to manage paying it back, um, is it is there um, a challenge involved where maybe they would take on more than they would be able to to handle? That was what I really had to learn starting, Stuart. You know, my background was in real estate investment finance. It You know, it's pretty well understood that that can be a profitable business. Right. But as I started working in sustainable agriculture, that was a lot of questions. You know, is it possible for these farms to earn a living? Like, can can they actually support capital at you know reasonable rates and and pay it back and grow? And if they can't, then that then I don't want to do it. You know, the goal is that they can be successful too. And I think we've honed in on a certain type of farm. So it's not just that they're sustainable regenerative, but you know, they're by being sustainable, they're limiting their purchased inputs, they're recycling nutrients in the land which means they have limited expenses and control over those expenses by operating on land efficiently and not having huge pieces of equipment. They don't have too much overhead. They don't have huge amounts of other labor. And then by selling direct to consumer, direct to the end user, ideally value added products, they end up with a decent margin, decent cash flow, and they can recycle that. So like there's a certain char- characteristic of farm that I think 
can be successful in this climate. And then if they can get a boost of funding, they can produce more with more equipment, more tools, more labor and sell more and then go down the, the value chain by instead of selling a raw material, sell a value added product. So those farms are doing very well. You know, they're, they're telling a story to individuals they're selling direct to consumer. They were selling restaurants. They've obviously had to adjust that recently. I find the farm that is struggling is just selling a, a kind of commodity in the market. You know, they're just selling it to whatever the price is going to be. So I haven't seen a farm who's selling to a distributor make any money. I haven't seen anyone who's selling to an intermediary make any money. Just economics don't work. So part of our process is helping the farmers understand, and that's where our team member who's a farmer, you know, what is the highest and best use investment? Are these just nice to have investments? Are these going to drive cash flow? Are these going to reduce costs? And instead of focusing on funding $200,000 up front, let's start with a loan of 35K just for some fencing, hoop houses, irrigation. Let's fund that. We'll give you a few months before you start paying interest so that you can generate revenue from that uh, use of funds. And then next quarter, let's talk about more funding. And so just breaking it into little bits that each little bit accelerates the growth of that business, helps them take that next step and doesn't concern them with taking on too much debt. Because, you know, we like to lend them as little as possible. That's our view of that. It's, it, it is a challenging market. It's always going to be a challenging market. Most of the farms we're supporting, you know, they're working off farm jobs. They don't have health insurance. They're not earning enough at the farm level to ever take any money home. And our goal is to then get them at a scale where they could stop working all farm jobs. They could eventually, you know, take home 30 or 40K a year would be a dream for all of these farmers. And that means they need to get to, you know, half a million revenue or a million revenue. So we're they're growing very quickly, I think, from this capital because the demand's not the problem. You know, if you're a well-branded farm telling a good story, there's so much demand for the product. The problem is they can't get their production up without any capital. And that that tends to be where we're like, you've kind of have your products defined or you're now doing yogurt and we're going to expand into this other adjacent product. So we're, you know, we try to be involved with the farmer of business planning um, to make that a reality. It's, it's not a passive business. You can't just lend to one of these farms and then hope, you know, five years later, they're in a position to pay. Yeah. Well, that number you just mentioned is, is, kind of um, surprising to me. Well, not surprising based on what I know about farms, but um, but thirty to $40,000, that would be considered a success if a farm is able to, to bring that amount home. For themselves, net pay at the end of the day, like, right. for, like for the owners of the farm as their- But that's not farm. much. No, it's not much. It's very modest. I know that's, that's, it's in any other sector, people are hoping to make much, much more. I mean, that basically means there's no land costs because they're living on the farm. That means the food costs are very low. Like that's that's mm. once their costs are covered. Um, right. But okay. mo- right now, the position most of these farms are in is no income. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's like, <laughs> I'd love for them to go farther. Um, I would say we, you know we have one or two farms that you know uh, one that we funded when they're at five and ten thousand dollars revenue. Two years later, they're at two million. Like they may be a regional powerhouse. They're almost like a CPG company. A few of them you know, I think can become really big businesses, but most of them just want to have this lifestyle, you know, run a nice business, but not be bigger than just focusing on their local market. And the the pleasure is that they can do this work. And so if you can just alleviate that stress and get them in a, a comfortable position, but, but you have to have at least a certain amount of revenue to support that. So that's why I find this 
work, you know, frustrating in many ways that the way our society motivates people, you know, these farmers are asking for very little and they're doing the right thing of what everyone says needs to be done. And yet they're not able to access the resources. And so it, it's unfortunate that I would say people who are sacrificing a lot um, and, and taking actions that are in the greater good are not being rewarded for that today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and on the flip side, you know, because of the, the model, unlike um, other sort of past or current crowdfunding models where if you decide to um, give some money to support a project, you kind of get a, maybe you get a thank you letter or maybe if you donate enough, you get, you know, a free product once the product is developed. With this model, you're, it's crowdfunding, but you're making an investment that generates a return, right? So um, are, are small sustainable farms a good investment? Yeah, correct. That, that, so we are, people are lending capital to the farms on our platform. We originate and administer the loans and handle all the kind of regulatory and intermediate process. Most of the loans are made between 6 to 8%, depending on kind of experience of the farmer, collateral, et cetera. And then those funds are paid back over time. I actually believe it is a good market. I think there, there are good operators. There's a lot of opportunity in the market. I would say, you know, the, the max interest rate we've ever done is 10%, and that's on, you know, scrappier farm, hemp farm, which always is, is on the outside of access to capital. So I, I, it's not a market where people are going to earn huge double digits, but I think they can earn solid returns of, of low, you know, mid-single digits, high-single digits, while seeing very positive impact and while having, you know, risk managed by the fact that their loans are often secured by equipment or land. So I, I think of it as a thing where I wish more people had money in these types of investments that have a lot of positive impact and can earn a reasonable return. I, I think in order to really get enough capital online to support the transition towards regenerative agriculture, people do have to earn at least a reasonable return. I think a lot of the first wave of impact investing was around, you know, earn 1% or 2%. I, I think that's just hard for people to actually do. You know, it sounds great, but ultimately people need balance earning some return and having a story that they believe in. And so I think that middle ground around like six to eight is fine for most farmers. You know, they, they can they can earn that if they're putting it to use the right way. And it's suitable for lenders where it's a reasonable return. Um, but that's what we're having to showcase to people. They're, prior to us doing this work, I mean, there, there's not a market for lending to regenerative farms is not a sense of what's a reasonable rate of return and how many defaults may there be, et cetera. So we've just had to build that ourselves and trial it. The, the first bunch of farms, I let my own capital just to, to understand it better. You know, before we opened it up to the public, I wanted to know better the, the viability of these farms. And I'm, and now I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident that there is a real like investment case and ability to earn a reasonable return around this type of agriculture, but certainly I would say the motivation for lenders on our platform, our motivation is to accelerate the growth of this type of agriculture to get resources in these, the hands of these farmers. And I think that's the, the driving factor of, of all the people we, we work with. And then the return is, is a nice part of it. And I think it, it lets them then recycle that, those funds and earn more capital. But they, they're certainly buying into the story of who that farmer is. Absolutely. Okay, we need to take a quick break for a word from a sponsor. We'll be right back.
This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Cultivating environmentally sound, economically viable, and community-focused farms and food systems. PASA Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference is one of the largest gatherings of sustainable farmers, food system professionals, and changemakers in the nation. The 2021 virtual conference takes place January 19th to February 5th and features more than 90 sessions on topics that include soil health, climate change, crop production, livestock grazing, urban agriculture, community building, food justice, and much, much more. Don't miss keynote speaker Robin Wall Kimmerer, scientist and author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Learn more about PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2021 virtual conference and register online at pasafarming.org conference. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I have been talking to Dan Miller, the founder and CEO of Steward, an investment platform for sustainable farms. So we really went through a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of details on investment and how Steward works in the first half of the show. Let's talk about the farms themselves. <laughs> so, um, how many farms have raised money so far, Dan? Now it's over thirty. We have a new one per week, and um, we actually have seven farms right now actively raising capital. So it's been growing very quickly. Great. And what are they growing? I, you know, can you give us, I mean, I know it's, it's different. There's a lot of different um, farms on there. Can you just give us some examples of the kinds of farms um, that have raised money on Steward? Yeah, I'll go in order of one, you know, that's live now to some of the recent ones. Um, One that's live now is Fisheye Farms. They're an urban farm in Detroit. They started on a 10th of an acre. Then they were able to buy an acre of land. So they're raising a mortgage loan to help them purchase more land and continue the growth of their farm. Um, before that, we just had a, a farm in Atlanta, right outside Atlanta. That's a the only organic UPIC strawberry farm in Georgia. And they're raising capital to buy new land and set up uh, soil amendments and bring in some compost and some irrigation infrastructure. Uh, prior to that, we had a the Colorado Peach Company, an organic peach company in Colorado. Um, it makes jams as well. They're raising money to purchase a new piece of land. So, you know, I would I would say our type of farmer is, you know, a lot of fruit and vegetable, a decent amount of livestock. We do a bunch of hemp farms. We're not focused on one type of agriculture. We're focused broadly on different farmers. But certainly their story is what motivates us. You know, it's the kind of we gravitate towards the ones that really have a compelling story and have shown that they've they've put the time in. So I, I, I mean, for me, talking and working with the farmers is always the best part. Right. Um, you mentioned hemp, um, which is interesting. Um, I know, you know, obviously growing hemp only became legal again um, in the past few, few years. Um, and I, Are these um, hemp farms that are growing for CBD? We actually have a mix. The first hemp farm we supported was East Fork Cultivars. Their sun-grown craft hemp farm in Southern Oregon. They've been CBD focused for like five or six years before before it became like the hottest product in the world. You know, unfortunately, for better or worse. 
And so they, <laughs> they've been kind of doing it the right way, I would say, from the start. So we helped them expand into hemp by new land for processing, curing. They now sell CBD oil direct to consumers, so kind of like fully from growing it, processing all the way to the oil. We now have a farm that's raising capital uh, for hemp grain. It's actually an organic farm in Michigan that's grown the grain, and they're selling it to a CBG company. So I, wow. I'm, I'm interested in hemp as fiber, as food, as building materials, as as flour. Unfortunately, like all the attention's on CBD today, but for me, it's it's much broader than that. So because we're an alternative capital platform, you know, hemp suits us well because they have impossible. You know, it's, it's hard enough it's to hard raise to money get funded, as a regenerative right? farmer, yeah. and then you add the hemp and, on it, and yeah. it's pretty much impossible. And so I think it's a sector where there'll be a lot of opportunity for us to not only support the farms, kind of build some of those value chains and the end products all the way through. Yeah, I'm so interested in that. Um, just because hemp is such a, a versatile crop and, you know, it's it's like we decided, oh, we can grow it again and it's only being used for this one thing, CBD. And like you said, you know, it's like hemp is as a food, it's just like protein rich, plant based. Um, and, you know, you can create fabrics and fibers and, and there's just it seems like there's just no processing right now. Right. For farms that would want to potentially um, grow for, for different markets. Yeah, there's no infrastructure. I mean, it's been a prohibited item for a hundred years, you know, for better or worse, mainly for worse. And so not only just growing the hemp is, well, then what are you going to do with it? So there's the processing issue. And then there's the after processing, which is actually, what are the end products? Like, well, what is the building material that it's going to be made into? Or what is the food that it's going to be made into? What's that going to go into? So I find it fascinating because you're having to be very innovative around not just the farming of it, but follow all the steps through. And we began just funding primary producers, but then we started funding value added processing. We're now working with CPG companies to finance their supply chain as they buy from regenerative farms. So I, I see us having a role in building that that whole supply chain from the product all the way to the end user. And then we're actually working with one vermicompost company. So on the, on the recycling of the nutrients all the way back. And I think if people can tie all those links together that you can have a successful small farm economy without uh, better processing and regional local processing. Right. Oh, and that reminds me, um, you, you're you also expanding beyond farms um, to seafood, right? Yes, we are. We have our first fisheries project now in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it's line caught dayboat tuna. So they go out, they catch it that day, they bring it back, they freeze it immediately. They sell some directly, and the rest they freeze to then ship and sell directly to consumers through a community-supported fishery. And we have soon to launch our first aquaculture project with Atlantic Sugar Kelp, a company that's buying and processing uh, sugar kelp in the Northeast. And there we're funding a dehydrator, so it's a very sexy piece of equipment. But, you know, kelp is very heavy, and there's no infrastructure to process it. So everybody's talking about the benefits of growing kelp and removing you know, salinity from the sea and also removing uh, a lot of the pollutants. But, you know, what are you going to do with the kelp? And so this company is buying from regenerative farms and then doing the value-added processing. Mm. So is the idea that um, potentially as Steward expands um, in the future that you would fund more kind of projects across the food system outside of, you know, strictly farms? 
We're, we're right now we're sticking to regenerative agriculture as the framework, I guess, and aquaculture and fisheries, but I, I kind of group those together with timberland. Right. <laughs> and, and then the processing has just been something, well, you know, the farmers need processing to get the value added product to market. If they can't sell a value added product, they're not going to earn the revenue they need. And so then we started working with some farmers, starting with an Amish dairy and grain farmer for him to do his own processing. So he could do raw milk and the fluid milk and other things. And then we started to have realized that the processing doesn't necessarily need to be on farm. It can be done by other groups, whether it's a CPG company or a cooperative of farmers. So as we kind of get more into the market, I, I think you just can't have a boundary about supporting the product to market. And I think the three steps are the growing of it, the processing out of it and the selling of it. Some farmers do all of that themselves and, that's a very impressive farmer, and it's it's very hard to do all of this very well, but some can. Others do those first two, but work with a cooperative on selling it, or some just do the growing, and then they have a network that can process it, and then the CPG company can sell it. So there's kind of all different varieties, but it's the same process, which is growing the crop, getting it processed, processed value add, and then doing the end sale. And we're willing to support a fully vertically integrated farm like East Fork Cultivars, or we're willing to support the farmer who's just doing the uh, growing and then also finance the intermediate steps of, of processing. So yes, that has been something I would say we've broadened our scope of realizing it's it's more than just the farm to have a, a sustainable food system. Right. So we have to wrap up. Um, before we do, I want to just ask you like a big picture question. So you know, the commodity food system and the amount of money invested in that system is pretty large and powerful. Um, is there a way that Steward can really make a dent? Like, how do you see this um, shifting the food system in the future? So it, it's definitely going to take time. So I, I'm, I, I believe Stewart can have that impact and the broader movement can have that impact. But I think there's a lot of always impatience of people want things done in years. When it basically <laughs> like, could you do was, it tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, can we get it done now? But it was 100 years to dismantle the current food system, you know, from the kind of pre-World War II to now. So it's it's going to be at least a few decades to really rebuild a different system. And our goal there is to be as a platform to bring Anybody who has the capital wants to support these farms onto our platform to provide capital to those farms, bring on any of these farms that are doing this type of work that either transition to it or are already farming in this way or supporting regional food systems, give them access to capital, and then build also a network of service providers and other individuals who may not want to farm themselves, but may be an expert in bookkeeping or law or or marketing. So you need you need a huge amount of people. I mean, you need millions of farms hundreds of billions of dollars, probably, you know, tens of millions of, of individuals using their skill set. That That's really what it's going to take. Um, so we're building the, the foundation that can support that as a remote team with all of these different pieces. So even though it's small, what we're doing now, if you double and triple and kind of keep expanding the scope of capital and farms, it'll build a resilient system that can then thrive in any of these environments. For, for me, the biggest takeaway from the past year was that the farms that we support had their best year ever. They had more sales than ever. They are doing better than they ever are. You know, the niche of agriculture we carved out that I would say was 
you know, is being ignored and wasn't really taken seriously is actually the only bright spot in agriculture. Most large commodity farmers are really struggling. If you strip, strip away the subsidy payments, it doesn't support itself. So it definitely will be a battle, but I think there is an imperative that they're unable, you know, the current model does not sustain itself economically or ecologically. But as you said, the, the amount of capital invested in that system is, is enormous. And a lot of those are, should be stranded assets. And so until you have a real restructuring of government influence and policy and involvement in agriculture, you're, it's going to be hard to have that impact. As part of that, we've just started the Steward Foundation and hired uh, someone to run it. And we're going to also be getting involved in supporting political candidates and individuals who are helping to move the food system politically, because you can't, you can't have the impact that needs to happen if you're not also trying to change policy, because ultimately the policy is what created the system we have now. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are just going to be paying more attention to policy as we get this new administration in. And um, yeah, we'll just be paying attention to what's happening there. Um, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.